I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University, and you're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. The card was like really awesome. Like it's really great. Though though I think the thing that I knew would bother me, but like I didn't realize how much it would bother me um, was when you see Patrick Stewart and he's old. You know, he's a guy that's always looked older, mm. um, but has carried it so well. Yeah. Um, but now he just really looks old, like yeah. frail old. And it's just kind of, oh. Yeah, he's what he's eighty years old. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing too was when he's um, in specific scenes. I'm not going to give it away because people are listening now. There are action scenes where you can tell they switched him out. Oh, oh, and oh very obvious. I was uh, like, I was like, oh, you know, well, there you go. Sir Patrick you know? isn't going to run up all of those stairs. Let's be no. real. He's not. He's I mean, not even fit. if he was a fit 80-year-old man, he he doesn't need to because he's Patrick Stewart. That's right. Oh, did you <laughs> see that on The View? He was on The View last week. Yeah, I and... saw the, the whoopee piece. Yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I'm looking for – I think they'll, they'll phase in next-gen cast members however many seasons go on. So, like, if they hit three, like – we would have expected to see all of them. Yeah, we'll get to Barkley at that point. You know what, though? Just give me Galron, and I'm good. I Galron's need crazy eyes Galron. He's dead. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wishful he, thinking. I was about Wait to say, uh, he can't, spoiler alert, he died in Deep Space Nine. Um, <laughs> Years ago. Yeah, two decades ago. <laughs> I can't believe Deep Space, it's been that long. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Somebody, somebody told me the other day, wow, Picard is as, um, it's the best Trek since Deep Space Nine. And I was like, have you seen Discovery? Um, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe that, maybe I'm one of those weird ones that has enjoyed Discovery, but. I've enjoyed it. It's um, been great. Yeah, it has been. And uh, it's it nice uh, kind of shot in the arm for the, for the franchise. And here's the thing though. I, I, with maybe the exception of the original series, um, the third season is when Star Trek's don't suck anymore. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and with, uh, I think Discovery like really started to get it right in the first season, and then the second season they really like hit their stride, and then. Mm. Now we're to the, well, it should be good now season. And right. I'm really excited to see where it goes. So. Well, you know, the short treks are pretty good too. Yeah, they are. The triple one is amazing. The, the triple one was fantastic. And, you know, we're still seeing a lot of Pike. Yeah. Um, so if, if Pike and, and uh, his Enterprise crew don't get a show, I'll, I'll be disappointed. I think there's a not a short track, but there is something that is tied to Picard somewhere out there that I haven't watched yet. It, yeah, it's Children of Mars. That's a yeah. short track. 
Yeah. Yeah. I need Definitely to go watch that. Watch one. Children of Mars first and then Picard. I will. I'll go back and watch that. Um, but I've anyway, seen Picard twice already, but <laughs> so I'm working on the third. Yes. Um, I think we should probably introduce you now because you know, Star Trek. So anyway, guys, that's our, that's our short little half pod about Star Trek Picard. Stay tuned for more. Um, if I can t- get another guest to talk to me about it. Um, <laughs> So, RJ, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is RJ Thompson. Um, I wear a lot of hats. Uh, today, I was wearing the Associate Director of Student Engagement hat in the uh, the Business College at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, ask me tomorrow. I'll be doing that and adjunct teaching an interactive design class at Point Park University in Pittsburgh. And then you ask me Wednesday night, I'll be at Pitt, but then I'll also be teaching a class. So I don't know what Thursday will bring. Hopefully a beer. That'd be great. Yeah. Beers are good. Uh, beers are good. <laughs> I know for tomorrow, um, I will be wearing like several hats myself, but at the end of the day, I'm throwing axes. So that's, that's nice. a thing. Yeah, I, I'm in an axe throwing league, which sounds as fascinating as it is, um, and very hipster, or as a friend of mine calls it, hipster darts. So, so I, I see that as like you, you, you know, you get the catharsis out of it, you know. Uh, you, oh yeah, you know? it is a stress reliever. Yeah, um, but it's it also a stress maker. Stress and release. <laughs> The problem is, is that where it's less effective is that usually when you throw it too hard, um, it doesn't stick uh, to mm. the board. It doesn't go in unless you're like really, really good. And I'm not really, really good. So, um, yeah, it's it's more of a I'm not thinking about anything else but throwing a piece of metal attached to a piece of wood at another piece of wood. So. so- I really want to try that, but I'm also afraid that I will be the one person in history to injure themselves doing that. You're probably not the first. There are plenty of YouTube videos. <laughs> probably not the first. <laughs> um, but it's really hard to hurt yourself. I'll say that much. Yeah. Like, you really have to do something stupid. Um, and, yeah, and usually it's like not hitting yourself with an axe. It's like touching the board or touching the blade like those right. are those are those are the kinds of things where kind of incidental things that you're not consciously paying attention to right like a board that is very splintery you probably shouldn't rub your finger against it um because i don't know people have been throwing axes at it all day and it will right. probably stick you somehow with a very nasty three inch splinter <laughs> i have not actually done that but I'm sure someone has. So um, for for my creative people out there, as he was explaining this, if you were mentally imagining that as, you know, the splinter, the, the splinter creating that, that puncture. Um, and then I could, I could just imagine the collective groan like, Oh, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's why well, I tried I to over exaggerate it with a little hyperbole. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. But, you know, I probably made it worse. Um, Man, I might have to put a warning at the beginning of the show. Are um, we not here to entertain? <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you end up 
where you are. Um, that is a question that I tend to ask a lot of, yeah. well, pretty much everybody on the show, but I always find it interesting how people end up where they are. And, um, you know, just from what I know of you, it looks like you took a, an interesting road, I guess, to get to where you are. Yeah, I, I definitely took an interesting road and, um, I'm happy to elaborate on all of this. Uh, but for, for the time being, I'll kind of give you the, the basics. So, um, I'm a graphic designer by, by trade and, um, by virtue of academia. Um, I actually started doing, uh, graphic design when I was 11 years old. Um, I'm 34 now, so you can sort of do the math and figure out how long I've actually been a practicing designer. Um, but yeah, I started at 11, um, and did graphic design, animation, web design, uh, video editing all through high school, and I walked into an associate degree program, got my degree there, and then um, went back to school, got a bachelor's, and um, that's really kind of where my my career started. Um, shortly after graduating from there, I started working for Heinz North America in Pittsburgh. So. Yeah. When you guys pick up a, a, ketchup, a Heinz ketchup bottle, uh, be it glass or the upside down plastic ones, and you see the vine and uh, the tomato on the Keystone label, um, I was a part of the team that did that. That was actually a cross-ocean sort of collaboration between Heinz Europe and Heinz North America. Can I, um, can I ask a cynical question? Please. How many, um, how many focus groups did you go through for that vine? Uh, Great question. Um, I can't tell you how many focus groups, but we definitely went through like five different, 500 different versions. Of course. Easily. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I I worked for them for two years. And um, this one day I, um, I saw there was a portfolio review uh, at a college downtown and uh, I decided to go. And I went on my lunch break and two and a half hours later, I'm still there reviewing portfolios. And you can imagine I got a pretty stern talking to from my art director uh, when I got back. But um, his his complaints fell on deaf ears because it was at that time I realized, like, I need to go get my my graduate degree and I need to really take a hard look at teaching because I was just, I was so in the zone and it just felt like the most comfortable place, uh, I could be. So why? uh, Just curious. You know, there was, I, I, I've had the benefit of having had some really great teachers, uh, in my life. And, I saw that the impact that they had on me and there's just something about reciprocating that that was important. Um, But also, you know, at that time, I wasn't really keen on sitting behind a desk all day. Um, I need I had a lot of energy and enthusiasm and creativity and I just needed to to get it out there into the world. And um, I've always been. Uh, an ambitious person, uh, sometimes to a fault. And I just knew that my present job at that time, that wasn't going to scratch the itch that I had. Um, and I'm glad I left because there was no way I would have the career I, I have now if I had stayed. So, so you've taught some, um, yeah, you're still so, teaching right now. Uh, yes. Which, which is great. Um, 
ever since that time, that was about 2009, um, I got my, I started teaching in higher ed. I was 24 years old. Um, and I've been teaching, I've been teaching interactive and graphic design for the past decade. Um, and you know, the, the faculty side of things, you know, it can be really difficult, not just, you know, the whole tenure track uh, process notwithstanding, but just even just finding a teaching job. Um, in Pittsburgh, I have the I've had the benefit of being able to teach at different universities, but I really had to hop around a lot to to find some permanence. So I taught at La Roche University, which is a small private Catholic, like super, super small. Uh, I taught at Carnegie Mellon, which is the exact opposite. It's like <laughs> world-renowned, massive university, uh, Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, which was a state school. And then for the past, for about seven years, I taught at Youngstown State University in Ohio, and I was tenured there. Um, And then one day I just decided, well, I didn't decide it. It was a very hard decision, but it was one that was made with surprising ease. Um... I just decided to leave there and I started doing uh, student engagement in the, the College of Business Administration at Pitt. And um, so here I am seven months into my position at Pitt having a great time and um, I've had <clears throat> I've had the opportunity to continue teaching interactive design like I said at Point Park, but then also teach brand management which is in the marketing program at Pitt Business which is a really unique sort of deviation for me, but is totally within my wheelhouse and, I, and I'm loving it. So um, I'll always be a teacher. I'll always be in a classroom somewhere, but I'm really loving the staff side of things right now. So it's not often that I actually talk to someone that can talk to both sides of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, something that, you know, a lot of people are either on one side or the other, you know? Right. And so how is it different? Like what, what's the, we'll just stick with pros. What are the pros of being faculty and what are the pros of being staff? Well, I would say the pros of being faculty, um, you get a certain level of autonomy and freedom with that work. You can teach your classes how you want. You can write your own syllabi, your own lesson plans. You can teach in your own unique style. You have so much academic freedom, and it's great. Um, Even on the research side, I loved doing research and practice-based work. Uh, to fulfill my my scholarship responsibilities to my my tenured position. Um, So I really enjoyed that. Um, Being able to work with the students either one-on-one or in the classroom, developing strong relationships with them that fortunately, in my case, still last to this day. Um, The downsides to being faculty are you're very deeply immersed in politics Hmm. um and depending on your level in the faculty and the overall culture of your department if you're at the bottom end of the tenure spectrum meaning your pre-tenure you know there's a certain level of expectation from elder faculty that you behave a certain way that you do things a certain way they're not your supervisors, they're not your bosses, but there's, in some cases, this expectation of falling in line. Right. Um, 
Otherwise, they don't vote in favor of your tenure and promotion, and your career is effectively dead. Um, so that's a huge downside. And, you know, I think that there are two main aspects to having a negative experience on the faculty side. And it's never the students. So let me be upfront by saying that it's never the students. If you have a bad relationship or a poor classroom experience with your students, that's not their problem, that's yours. So fortunately, I've never had that particular issue. Um, my issue has been sort of my ambition. So mm -hmm. um, I, made a, I made a lot of great strides with my career in a small amount of time. Uh, but I also made a lot of sacrifices to to hit those those benchmarks. And, you know, fortunately, those are paying off. But um, at the time I was going up for tenure and promotion, it was not those things were not working in my favor. So, you know, you have to consider uh, the level of productivity you have um, as a junior faculty member, um, going into tenure versus the productivity of long tenured full professors that have been in your department in some cases longer than you've been alive. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the downsides can be really bad, but the two main things that affect the downsides the most are poor leadership from the Dean to the associate Dean to the department chair, and then also enrollment, which is actually the common point that affects both faculty and staff. So yep. when, in, when enrollment's down, everyone suffers. I've been lucky enough to never experience that, but I don't think that's something I ever want to. Well, you know, when I was at Youngstown State, that is something that we were experiencing. I mean, in in eastern northeastern Ohio, there weren't exactly a lot of uh, you know careers for graphic designer designers, let alone fine artists. So, this is an example of when job satisfaction, or rather, the need to be able to prove job satisfaction excuse me, in your marketing materials and when you're you're talking to parents and, you know, what are the placement rates? What kind of jobs are the students getting? The fine arts and the humanities are really having a hard time with that, more specifically the fine artists. So, oh, you're going to go into a fine arts program? That's great. Where are you going to be? Uh, That's something I found super interesting because currently, I know everybody talks about STEM, but... Yeah. BFAs are in high demand too because they are. design um, is everything. Everything yes. we do, the cup we drink out of, the the road that we drive on, like everything's designed and it's designed by a designer. Um, right. And anything that's aesthetically pleasing that we use, whether it's our iPhones or our backpacks, our, sure. you know, water cups uh water uh whatever are yetis <laughs> mm -hmm. it's all designed all, they're all designed by someone and they're designed yeah. by someone who is generally an artist of some right. sort uh an artist or a creative so you know the situation i was in was hey uh graphic design has the largest enrollment in the entire college which means the fine artists, the fine arts programs were compromised. So where I could say to a parent, oh yeah, 
your child's going to get a job as soon as they graduate because jobs are in demand. Our placement rate for design is high. But if I had a parent say to me, well, my child wants to go into painting, and I'm going to be like, okay, that's that's great. Um, your child is not going to have a job. Um, or at least uh, there won't be a quick turnaround on a position. And even what is that position? It doesn't mean they're painting all day. If they're in the arts field, it probably means they're going to be a docent or they're going to be some program uh, coordinator, something like that. So they won't actually even be painting, but they would be in the art world. Nevertheless, um, so when enrollment's down, and down to such a degree that rumors of closing programs is swirling about and the design program is flourishing and the rest of the fine arts are not, that can create some really ugly scenarios, especially for, you know, junior faculty like me or like I was at the time, you know, because all the elder faculty were in the fine arts program. So they kept experiencing compromise and, you know, they would have to double up on their courses and stack classes to make enrollment work for them. And, you know, that type of situation, it's we're trapped rats. And um, there's that you can't really work out of that. Ultimately, dealing with the fallout of those kinds of situations is why I left uh, YSU. So why? Um, why staff? So, um, you know, I, I definitely left YSU under certain circumstances. Like I, I just, I called my friends at Pitt and I said, I need out of Youngstown. I don't care what I'm doing, but I want to work at a college. I need to stay in the higher ed field. That's where a bulk of my experience is. Um, I'll clean toilets. I don't care. Just find me something, help me. And fortunately, um, the two friends that I mentioned this to, they're like, well, it just so happens that there's a, a, a marketing position open in our college that you'd be perfect for. And that's how it worked out. Hmm. So, I mean, I applied to other universities, not to teach, but staff side. I knew because the one thing that having been faculty, I realized how hiring the hiring process works for for faculty, let alone mm -hmm. tenure track. So, you know, there was no way I was going to be able to match my salary level uh, coming in as a visiting professor at a university or as uh, an adjunct teaching three classes. The salary wasn't there. So I, I figured, well, if I want to stay in the higher ed space, I need to start looking at managerial roles um, on the staff side. Hmm. So what, what do you, why do you like the staff side better? I mean, I know we talked about a little bit, but I mean, there's, there's definitely pros and cons to it as well. There is. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll start off by saying, I feel like I'm a very blessed man with mm -hmm. respect to the, the position I'm in now. Um, so I came in as a, a kind of a it's called a admin three so um i'm like one step below a director right now mm -hmm. um and one of the things that i found is that if you have the right boss uh the right supervisor and they recognize your talents and your skill sets then they're going to enable you to do 
what you want and do what you do best. And fortunately, um, I have that in in my supervisor. So he knows my skill set. He knows my my problem solving process, and he trusts me. Um, and so, like, I get things done. I do the work. I get it done. I don't complain. Um, I just keep moving forward. So the work ethic that I developed as a, a researcher and tenured faculty, I brought to the staff side. And one of the things that I realized is that like that work ethic and that that problem solving process is very compatible to the staff side. So I'm very efficient and I'm able to get things done very quickly. But because I also came in with all of this teaching experience, I also know how to work with those that are underneath me. So I myself don't actually have any direct reports. Um, I'm kind of on an island, but I work with various other teams, study abroad, career development, another marketing team in the graduate school. And I'm able to, to use that teaching sensibility to work with them uh, productively, but then also cultivate trust by saying like, Hey, you know, if you have some ideas, let's brainstorm and figure these things out. And I found that on the staff side, the the people that I work with have found that to be a very palatable uh, and engaging thing uh, for themselves. And they're able to push themselves a little bit further. So I understand that, you know, at least on the staff side, not everyone is going to be staff forever. They're not always going to be in the same position. They may choose different colleges, different departments. Uh, different roles, but each one of them is looking to grow in some way. And if you think about it, that that's really not too dissimilar from the relationships that I'd have with my students in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I found that those engagements have been really compatible with the staff side. But also, like I said previously, you know, my supervisor trusts my my creative um, and, and my vision and I bring new things to the table all the time and, and then I execute on them and, um, there's very little interference in that. So, um, that has been, uh, just a really great thing for me because I'm able to just pick the ball up and, and sprint with it and keep going. Um, Isn't that a great feeling? It, it really is. And, you know, I, I like I said, I feel like I'm blessed in that respect because I don't think there are a lot of people on the staff side that can have that sort of same or similar experience. Um, and I know some do. Maybe if they do, they're at a higher level, like a, a director level or something like that. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, like, I know that salaries aren't really that great for junior level people. Um, in higher education, depending on where you're at. So, you know, I really try to give the people that sort of work under me as much opportunity to learn and cultivate skills they can so that they can move on into different positions. And um, I like being able to provide that mentorship too uh, when I can. So uh, long story short, I have less stress. I can go home at four <laughs> o'clock every day and play with my daughter and uh, still teach my classes and get all of the experiences that I want for for my career. That's great. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody put it that well. Um, of course, then again, I've never really had anyone that's done. Um, <laughs> well, th- th- we've had folks that are doing both at the same time, but we've never had a- anyone I think that's really tenure track or was tenure track and then 
you know, moved over to the staff side of things. Usually it's the other way around. Usually it's, you know, staff moving to the, yeah. Um, <laughs> to the, to the, to the faculty side of things. So, you know, there's a phrase I use with everyone and it's more of a methodology. Um, but I, I like to say when other people zig, you zag. So <laughs> where all staff people are becoming faculty, of course, I'm the one person that comes from faculty to staff. So I have like these very weird paths around around my career. And to those that are staff and are getting their advanced degrees and pursuing PhDs and things like that, more power to you. Um I think you'll find that after you graduate and you're ready to start looking at the staff side of things that I'm sorry, the faculty side, it's a whole other world entirely. Um, and it's one that the staff side uh, experience may not prepare people for very well. Um, and it can be pretty jarring. So I would say the, the transition I had into staff was extremely smooth, but from staff to faculty, that could be very jarring. So please be forewarned in that because you may find after all of that advanced degree teaching and, and learning and uh, all that stress and, and sacrifice that you put into it, once you hit the staff side, you might not like it. And I know that that is a terrifying prospect, but it's, it's one that I would encourage people to think about realistically. Uh, especially, especially if you are in a state school that um, whose state underfunds education. Hmm. Well, I think that's a great place to end on this week. Oh, okay. Yeah. I Look at that. We... <laughs> well, thanks, RJ, for joining us this week. Yeah, of course. Hey, thank you very much. This was great, and uh, hopefully, we can uh, check in again soon. Yeah. Listeners, head down to higher and get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to the show anywhere you'll listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and it lets us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HES Podcast. Send us a tweet. We love talking to you and don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show. Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Vitrano and me, Logan Bishop, and is produced by the amazing Emma Haas. We're part of the Connect EDU network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. Thanks and have a great week. <laughs>